Lord, as we wrap up one year, we just thank you for your faithfulness that you've made manifest to us um, this past year. And as we look to a new year, Lord, we ask that um, you would become even more precious in our eyes and in our hearts. We want to know you more. And so, Lord, we ask that you speak to us through your word today. Lord, I'm asking that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak through me to all of us. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm not adequate on my own to, to speak the words you would have me speak from your words. So I'm asking you for your help. Lord, for, for our good, for the glory of your name, Lord, speak through me today. Lord, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. If you'd like uh, to follow along, we have Bibles here at the front you can grab and borrow for today or take home if you need a copy of the Bible. Um, please turn with me to Psalm 46. As you do so, I want to tell you about um, Tuesday, January 12, 2010. I received a phone call from Diane Scharf, many of you know from this congregation, a good friend of mine. She called and asked how my sister Sarah was doing. And I assured her she was doing really well. She had just um, had a good holiday with us at the Christmas season. And she said, no, something about an earthquake in Haiti. And I assured her that I didn't know what she was talking about, but if I heard anything, I'd let her know and thanked her for calling and hung up the phone. Then I went over to the internet and Googled Haiti earthquake. And to my horror, I saw the first images of that earthquake many of us will remember following along in the news. Well, for the next few hours, few agonizing hours, my family kept going to her Facebook and checking online to see if there's anything that would let us know that my sister Sarah was okay. Eventually we found out that she was alive and she was okay, but okay is a relative term. For all, like my sister, and all in Haiti, the time of the earthquake was absolutely horrifying. For those who lived like my sister, they all had friends or family who had perished in the, as, as the country crumbled. My sister had gone down to teach school at a mission base, and when she had gone down months before, Haiti was already in a, in a state of, of tragedy as, as the country is so poor and so broken. So when the earthquake came, came and the few foundations they did have crumbled, it was just absolutely horrifying. I remember um, clicking refresh every few minutes to see if there's any news updates, and the, the death toll numbers were just skyrocketing. It was horrifying. And although my sister was okay, uh, it, it was really traumatizing for her and for everyone who lived through that time. It was so painful. And I, I didn't fully realize how it affected me until the next New Year, because uh, New Year's is a, is a really precious time in my family. We often uh, get together, friends come over, and we play ice hockey on the outdoor rink, and we watch some family-friendly films. We have a beautiful time of worship and prayer, dedicating the New Year to the Lord. And 2010 was especially a year that I was looking forward to. I was really confident about a number of things that were going to come. And so the fact that the earthquake came on January 12th, just after this new year that was supposed to be so precious to me, had got underway, and just out of nowhere, bam, this earthquake just shook everything. And although it was so far away in Haiti, it was so close at home, and that affected my sister. And so as, as the next new year was coming up, I found myself looking forward to the future with this, this fear. When is the next boot going to fall on, on, on our heads? And I share the story not because I necessarily think you care about my New Year's experiences, but because I think it's very common for all of us who, if you've lived a few minutes on this earth, then you've probably experienced the reality of pain and, and suffering that can be part of the human condition. And so it can be a very normal human feeling to look to the future with a sense of dread, what's in store. And so... Um, as, uh, as George asked me to pray, uh, to preach today, and I was praying for the church and what God would have for us in the new year, 
God really put it on my heart to go through a passage that would show us a biblical way to view the future, a biblical way to see uh, the new year. And so, as we turn to Psalm 46, and I won't read it all because Nora just read it in her powerful, powerful scripture reading voice. Um, let's look at it. The mountains are often seen as the things that, that do not move, those things in our lives that we can count on in every situation, whereas the sea and the oceans are seen as those things that are in flux and changing, and it's the great unknown. And in the passage that Nora just read, Psalm 46, we see the mountains giving way and falling to the heart of the sea as those things that should be firm and should not move are, are just crumbling, and those things that are in flux and unchanging are just swelling up. And yet we see the psalmist saying in Psalm 46 that though that may be the case and though that may be in the future, we don't need to fear. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. One of the beautiful things that first springs up from this passage is that the Bible is very real about the reality of suffering and pain in our lives. The Bible doesn't pretend about it. It's real about the reality of pain and suffering in our lives. Now, this is really special and unique because there's a lot of philosophies and spiritualities on this planet uh, that, that try to deal with pain and suffering by ignoring them. There's a lot of Eastern philosophies and spiritualities, such as Buddhism, where the way that you deal with the reality of pain and suffering with earthquakes in our lives, it's just, you know, by just, it's just a matter of, of separating yourself from it, just meditating, and, and you know, it's, just, it's all in your mind, and you're going to connect somehow with something that's more real than the pain. But the Bible doesn't say that the pain isn't real. The Bible treats pain as real. And, and it's not only the Eastern philosophies that you might encounter a, a way of looking at life that tries to separate itself from pain. I've done a number of initiatives and work in fighting human trafficking and sexual abuse. And one of the, the, the first, the great hindrances to people finding healing is that when a child or, or someone of any age really comes to their family, their parents, their teachers, and it tells them that they're getting sexually abused, it's a very normal response for people to say, oh, it's, it's just a game, or to downplay it in some way, that we don't want to deal with the reality of pain and suffering. It's too painful, especially if, if the abuser is someone close to home. It's too painful to think that that might be the case, and so people try to act as if it's not really happening. And the tragedy of that is that you're not going to find healing unless if you deal with the real situation, if you deal with the pain. And we see in Psalm 46 that the psalmist does not beat around the bush. It, it speaks that though there may be times where the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we don't need to fear. So just as the Bible is real about pain and suffering, the Bible is real about a refuge. Now, refuge is a place you go for shelter and protection when there is some type of, um, of enemy or, or uh, difficulty, danger coming. So, for example, if you are... Uh, if you're in the Midwest and a tornado is coming to your house and you run to the cellar, that cellar, your cellar, becomes your refuge. Or if there's an earthquake and it's not as big as the one in Haiti, you can run to the doorposts of your house, the door frames, and there you'll find refuge as everything shakes, but the doorpost should remain intact. Or at the time that these ancient words in Psalm 46 were written, it was very normal for farmers. A lot of the people like us, the commoners, would have farms outside a walled city or near a castle, and if the enemy soldiers were coming, all of us farmers would run into this walled city, this fortress, and that would be a refuge, and it would protect us. Similarly, if you yourself was a soldier, and you went off to a battle, and you got injured, you'd come back to a place of refuge, of protection, to find healing, to find healing. 
And so the scriptures tell us that just as pain and suffering might be in store for us, and in some ways it is in store for all of us in different ways, we can find refuge in God. Now, another beautiful thing in this passage is it doesn't speak about God being a refuge, it's just God being a refuge, or God being the refuge, but God being our refuge. God is our refuge. Just a few months ago, I was speaking at a workshop. I was asked to speak on human trafficking in the gospel, and so it was a two-hour talk, and so I shared for the first little bit about the reality of human trafficking and sexual abuse in Canada. Then we looked a bit at ways that people can get involved, bringing rescue and restoration. And then for the most part of the two hours, we just looked at different testimonies of, of individuals who found healing and rescue and restoration in God as people who were so crushed by the abuse were able to be just restored and come alive once again through the power of the gospel. I promise not to talk for two hours today, but it was a, it was a long two-hour talk at the time. And afterward, a girl came up to me, a teenager came up to me, and she said, do you really believe that God can bring me healing? Now, I could have responded and said, well, for sure. Like, did you not just hear the past two hours? Like, weren't you listening? You could have taken notes. The whole thing was about God being the healer, God being a refuge. But she had heard that God was a refuge, and he, she had heard that God was the refuge. She had heard that God was their refuge. She needed to know, could God be my refuge? And so I want us to pause for a moment today and think, let that sink in. That God is not just a refuge. He's not just the refuge. He is our refuge. And all that that means. It's so important because if God is our refuge, it means that we can stop trying to be our own refuge. We can stop trying to be our own refuge. This is so important for so many different parts of life. Um, I'm told, I don't have any experience in this myself, but I'm told that one of the great challenges of marriage is that um, when communication breaks down. And one of the ways that communication breaks down is when someone is not able to be vulnerable with the other person. And I know for sure this is true in friendships, that if you're trying to uh, protect yourself from being vulnerable in in any type of friendship, you're not going to be able to really communicate. You're not going to be able to have the real intimacy that friendship is made for. And as long as as you're not trusting God to be your refuge, you're going to be your own refuge. You're going to try to protect yourself. You're not going to allow people to truly know you. Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 9 where he says that if anyone would seek to save his life, he'll lose it. But whoever will lose his life for Jesus' sake will find it. As long as we're trying to be our own refuge, we're gonna, it's going to affect the way that we spend our money. We're always going to be looking out for number one. As long as we're trying to be our own refuge, we're not going to be able to communicate with people in a healthy way. As long as we're trying to be our own refuge, we're not going to live the, the, the beautiful, dangerous, risky, God-glorifying life that he made us for. Because we're going to be trying to always be looking out for ourselves. But Jesus says there's a lot at stake in making God your refuge. Because if you don't do it, you're going to lose your life. Jim Elliot, a martyr just in the past century, said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We are no fool if we make God our refuge because he is the only refuge that can really protect us, that can give us any true reason for confidence when we look at the reality of the human condition and see the reality of suffering and pain that awaits us. If we make God a refuge, it's not going to make those things not happen, but it's going to give us every reason for confidence that we can go into the future trusting God, not to make the earthquakes not happen, but to sustain us and keep us in himself through it all. God is our refuge. Now, there's so much to God being a refuge. I was quite tempted to just keep it at that and just uh, continue to mind the depths of God being a refuge and all that's at stake and, and all that we have to gain through learning of God as a refuge. As I prayed about that, 
God, I think God reminded me of the first time I played laser tag. The first time I played laser tag was just a few years ago, and I had, I had the gun on my hand, I had the, the vest on, and, and they were counting us down, we're about to head out. I'm standing there, I'm just like, I want to win. I was committed to winning. And so they, uh, the doors open, and I run in, and I, I found a little place to hide, and I just stayed there. And everyone was running and laser tagging each other, and no one was laser tagging me. I was safe, and I was confident that I had this. The game ended, and I went out with everyone to see on the little TV screen that I'd won. And I looked. I think my name was probably Aragorn or something. And, and I looked up, and I looked at the first few names, and no Aragorn. I looked down. I looked at, finally looked at the bottom. There was my name, Aragorn. What? I never got hit, basically. And the reason that I lost is that laser tag is a lot like life. Laser tag is a lot like the, the call that we were made for as human beings by God, which is that we're not only called to have a refuge, we're actually called to go out. We're called to fight. We're called to go tag. And what's interesting is, as I was praying about this, and thought, okay, maybe there's more to just being a refuge than the psalm than just the refuge part. The psalm is, is not just a, a one stanza song. It was written as a song. It was written as a three stanza song. So whereas the first stanza of the song speaks about the mountains may fall and the oceans may rise, but God will be a refuge, then the second speaks to what the, the next little bit of the first line says, that God is a refuge and strength. But God is not only a refuge for us, but he's our strength. And if refuge is something that has an external protection to us, strength is this inner dynamic force within us that enables and empowers and equips us to live the life he's called us to live. See, in the second stanza, it speaks first of a city. And it speaks of a river. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And then it turns our attention to wars. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. It's God utters his voice. The earth melts. And it continues into the next stanza, speaking of, of wars and, and how God brings peace. Now, the first thing to note about the city is that if it's speaking about the, the city of God, we think Jerusalem. But unlike most of the cities at that time, the big cities, the important cities that had rivers going through them, uh, Jerusalem, as far as I understand, at that time at least, and I think still today, does not have a river going through it. But this river is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. And the scriptures elsewhere speak of, of, of the river, uh, of streams of living water coming from God, and, and how God, it, it's this image of bringing the nutrients we need for life. It, it, it makes analogies to us being like a, a tree and by the streams of water. You know, and how God brings, enables us to bear the fruit and live the life he's called us to. There's a strengthening of God that we receive from God as a river. So either speaking of, of Jerusalem at the time and how God is in the midst bringing life, not as an actual H2O water, but by the power of his Holy Spirit, or it's looking forward to the future time of, at the, in the new Jerusalem where God will be as a river to us. Either way, for me at least, I'm honest, I'm just an intern at this church. I don't actually know all that it's talking about the city of God. But what I do know with confidence is that it's true that God is the one who brings us that life. That just like water brings trees life, so God is a, a river to us. And it's in contrast to the, the swelling of the oceans, but God is a river to us that brings life. And then as it turns our attention to the wars on earth and the, the reality of the, the pain and suffering and the, the fighting in the human condition, we see that God is bringing peace. But God brings peace not in this passive way of just um, some type of passive thing, but rather you see God going out and he burns the chariots and he speaks and he's this act of moving forward. And see, the reason for human suffering, the reason that there's wars and all those things is because, um, 
at, at the dawn of time, human beings, we turned away from God, and we still do this today. Every time we see war, all these things, just pain and suffering, we're seeing human beings turn us, turn away from God, saying, Even, we're not going to honor you as king, we're going to do our own thing, and that's why there's all the suffering. But since the dawn of time, God promised to bring us a rescue. And God has been working oh, his grand scheme through Jesus of bringing rescue and restoration to the universe as he reconciles humanity to himself through Jesus Christ. And if we're followers of God, if we're children of God, then we're joining him in that rescue mission. And so my, my heart for us as we head into a new year is that we would evermore embrace this call of God, that we don't only look to God as a refuge, but we look to him as one who gives us strength to go out and to live the adventure, the life that he's called us to live. Reoccurring in the psalm is the words, the Lord of hosts is with us. It means the God of armies is with us. So the word host means armies. God's called to join him in his army as he brings peace and reconciliation to the universe. Later on in the service, we're going to be having communion. And so often communion for us is simply about the refuge that God provides. As we eat the bread and, and drink the wine, we remember that Jesus, in his own body, bore the punishment that we deserve. All of us, the ultimate Earthquake, the ultimate calamity of the human condition is the, is the just punishment we should receive from God. But as we remember in communion, Jesus bore that punishment for us. He took it upon himself. And so as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we remember Jesus bearing the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to face that punishment. And for a lot of us, that's where it ends. But Leviticus 17 speaks about the life being in the blood. And as we drink the wine today and in the future, let us remember, not only is Jesus the ultimate refuge for us, but as we drink the wine, let us remember that Jesus gives us his own strength, his own blood, his own life. Let us remember not only the death of Jesus, but the resurrection, and how he's called us to share in that resurrection life and to go and live. And sharing in that resurrection life from Jesus does not mean that we're going to, be, um, not mean we're going to avoid earthquakes in life. But again, it means we can share in the refuge that is God and the strength that he gives us. Now, as I thought about how to make this practical, I thought, well, we can, we can look at prayer and how um, prayer is one of the ways that, that we go to God to find refuge in him. I know everyone uh, who is God's child in this, in this room has testimonies of that time that your back is up against the wall, but you went to God in prayer and he came through for you. Like Second Chronicles 20, where King Jehoshaphat says, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and God comes through for him. Or we can look at worship. How we've all had those times where our soul is being crushed, and yet we, we remind ourselves, remind God of who he is. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 73, as his soul is being crushed, and then he worships God, he enters into his presence, and he finds such life and renewal in him. Or we can look at how the word helps us find strength and refuge in God. Think of Jesus in Luke 4, how he's getting so tempted and he's so weak and tired and hungry, he's fasting, and he quotes the scripture and he finds refuge and strength and he's able to overcome the temptation. Or King Josiah in 2 Kings 20, uh, 22, uh, where he's, he's living his life and all of a sudden they come across the, the, the Torah and the, they come across the, the books of Moses right in the temple and, and it changes the course of their lives, it strengthens them to live the holy life God's called them to do and to uh, do all that he's called them to do and be. Or we can talk about obedience. I mean, the whole book of Proverbs is basically filled with this message that if we fear God and seek to obey him, there's such refuge and shelter and life in that. There's such strength in that. That if we, if we actually seek to live the way God's called us to live according to his wisdom and his ways, applying the word of God to our lives, then we'll be just like Jesus said, the, like the person who built their house on the rock. 
that when the winds come and the rains come and the floods come, we're going to be able to stay steadfast in the Lord. There's such life, strength, and refuge as we seek to obey God. And so I thought of, if we had the time, to delve into all those different ones. But as I came back to this passage, I saw that it doesn't, at the beginning and throughout it, say, prayer is our refuge, or worship is our refuge, or even obedience, as important as that is, is our refuge. No, it says God is our refuge and strength. And the reality that the psalm is pointing us to is so much more precious and intimate than simply looking at prayer and worship. Though those things are important. See, prayer and worship and obedience, the scriptures, those are all facets of getting to know God. Look at verse 10. In the midst of it speaking about God being a refuge and strength and how God is bringing peace to the world as he crushes the, uh, the bows and the chariots. In verse 10 it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. These ancient words are are so fresh and so alive today because all of us live in a world where relativism is so dominant. I mean, we all have friends who will be like, you know, I'm glad that you're a Christian. Christianity works for you, but, you know, I'm an agnostic because, you know, that, that works for you, this works for me, it's all good. And the idea is that religion and spirituality and truth is just like a flavor. We all have our preferences and whatever works for you, works for you. But what's undergirding this whole philosophy, this way of life that even some Christians partake in, is the idea that it's impossible to really know anything. It's impossible to be certain of anything. But what we see right here is a command to be still and to know God. A few years ago, I was on the Greyhound bus, chatting with a guy my age. It was a long bus ride, so we had a long conversation, all the way from Windsor to Ottawa. And he was an agnostic and Really, a guy of the times today telling me how it's impossible to know anything. And I interrupted him gently and said, hey, I actually know God exists. I know God. He said, how can you be certain? How can you know God? And so I shared with him the rational, logical reasons for why I believe in God. I shared with him the argument from design, how if you look at a, at a clock or a watch, or for the younger people who don't know what watch, their cell phone. If you look at a cell phone, you'll see it intricately put together, and you'll think for sure there's a designer, uh, someone who made this. The universe is so much more intricate. Even our own bodies are so much more intricate than a watch or a cell phone. Clearly, there's a designer. He said, sure, I'm with you. you know, I'm, sure, I'll agree with you. It's logical to believe that there's a supreme being who created the universe. How that works, I have no idea. I said, yeah, we'd have no idea except if there was some reliable text that would speak to us about this, something that actually knows. He said, sure, but there's so many different holy books out there. How can you know which one's real? Or said, well, let's test them out. Um, you can talk about the uh, claims of many different ones, but if you find the one that's true, that you can trust, there you go. He said, well, how would you ever find that? Well, it was a long bus ride, longer than we have time for today, but we looked at so many different prophecies in the Scripture, all these prophecies of, of these words we know were in long before Jesus ever came, and then from what we know of history about Jesus, we see that that's true. The prophecies about where the Messiah was going to be born is where Jesus was born. The descriptions of how Jesus would live is how Jesus lived, and about his death and his resurrection, all these different things. And, I mean, that would be a cool coincidence if it was one or a few prophecies, but we're talking prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And not only are there prophecies in the scriptures about Jesus, but there's other prophecies about Cyrus before the guy ever came, before he was even born. Prophecies about Cyrus and how he would restore Jerusalem. And then there was a king. History tells us Cyrus who restored Jerusalem. So many prophecies in the Bible. And eventually it goes, the Bible goes from simply being a, an interesting book to all of a sudden being something that, that it's logical and rational to trust. In fact, you'd be a fool to ignore. And he was kind of tracking with me for a lot of that. 
I said to him, all of those would be reasons for why I would claim to, to know God exists. But I'm going to go one step further. I don't just know that God exists and that it's the God of the Bible. I know him. So what do you mean? Well, there's two kinds of knowing. There's a type of knowing that is knowing about. Say, for example, you have children who were orphans, and they hear that there's a great king, who, a benevolent king, who's going to adopt them. They're so excited to meet their, their new father. And uh, Kings make edicts. Kings make laws. They do stuff. So it shouldn't be too hard to find those edicts and laws. So they start searching it out, and then sure enough, they find edicts and laws made by this king. And so they, they meet together weekly, let's say Sundays. They meet together. They read these laws, these edicts by the king, and they're getting to know more about their king, their father. And then the father even writes letters to them. They're so happy. They got letters from them. So they, they read these letters. Now, they can spend as much time as they want reading those letters and looking at those laws, but they'll never, ever be able to claim that they know their father until their father comes and they're in his presence and they meet him. And now they know their father. I said, so often, as Christians, we, we settle for knowing about God. And that's my, my one concern with just talking about prayer and worship and reading the scriptures and even obedience is that for a lot of us, we can, we can know a lot about God and go through these things that are so important for living the life we were called to live and an obedient life to God. But all those things are only getting at knowing God. George, a few weeks ago, spoke from Revelation 3 about Jesus who says he stands at the door and knocks. And how by God's grace, by his power, we can open up our heart and receive him how we can actually get to know him. There's such comfort in Psalm 46 about God being a refuge and strength, such promise of confidence in him and and the life we can live. But that's only true if God is actually your refuge. And God is only your refuge if you actually know him and he knows you. Not Not just that you know about God, not just that you speak the liturgy each week, but that you actually know him. The words, be still and know that I am God, are not an invitation, they're a command. They're not an invitation, they're an ultimatum. The scriptures say right here, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We see this, this feature of the psalm, not just at the end, but throughout the whole thing. It keeps speaking about the presence of God. It, it says repeatedly, The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts isn't just alive, he's with us. It says about God being in the midst of the city. It's getting at the fact that God is not only that great king, that benevolent king, but he's our king, and he longs to adopt us as her own if we'll just open the door of our hearts to him. God will be exalted among the nations. One of the ways that we, not one of the ways, the, the way that we're able to allow Jesus into our hearts is when we turn from our own ways and we turn to him and say, Not only are you the God of the universe, not only are you the king of the universe, not only are you exalted in the universe, but Lord, be my God. Be my king. You are the one with whom my life I will worship and obey. You be exalted. Now these words about God being exalted, really anything being exalted, can can really scare any of us who've ever been abused. Because if you've been abused or bullied, it's where someone's being exalted who shouldn't be. It's where the more powerful is taken from the weaker, and that's wrong, It's evil. But when Jesus is exalted, when God is exalted, it's it's the rightful, benevolent king, the one who should be exalted, the one who should be above, being above, obeyed, and exalted. And so there is truly such comfort as we look at the fact that God promises that he will be exalted. And I want to invite you today, if you haven't ever 
truly given your life to God, if you've never said that, if you've never asked Him for forgiveness for your sins, if you never actually looked to Him and said, you know, enough of me trying to be my own refuge, enough of me trying to, to live the good life I can't live, but Lord, I'm going to look to You, that You would be my refuge from the judgment that I'm due, and that You would also be my strength to live the life You've called me to live. And as often as we fall, as often as we come back to Him, and we say, God, Father, forgive me for my sins. We keep looking back to God, for He is the Savior. And not only is He the Savior, but He longs to be our Savior. My prayer for us as a church, leading into this Sunday, as we go into the new year, is that we can look to God with confidence to be a refuge. That if you are, like me, someone who you've experienced pain and suffering, and so you're kind of fearing the future, that you can let go of those fears, and you can look to God as your refuge. That you can go into 2014 with confidence that no matter what earthquakes, no matter what death, no matter what pain might be in store for others or for yourself, that you can know that God will be your refuge. That we can go into a new year knowing that no matter the, the frailty we have, that God will be our strength. That God will be your strength to be the dad or the, or the mom, the husband or the wife, or, or the person that he made you to be that you can actually put to death those sinful habits that have riddled our lives and we can look to God for the strength we need to, to, to advance the kingdom of God, to bring his peace and his shalom to this earth. But more than anything, my prayer is that, that you and I can go into the new year confident that God is not only God who wants to be known about, but he wants to be known. He wants to know us. We find refuge and strength in God as we get to know him as we look to him. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that these words, written so many years ago, are trustworthy and true. Lord, we thank you that you have not only invited us, but commanded us to know you. And Lord, we say we want to know you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've made it possible that despite our frailty and defilements that we can be reconciled to you and, and become your children. Lord, we thank you that you are our refuge and our strength. And Lord, we look to you that as we enter a new year, you would help us entrust that to you, entrust our future to you, and stop trying to save our own lives, but instead seek to lose our life for your sake. That we would live the, the full adventure of life that you've called us to live confident in your goodness, in your steadfast love. Lord, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.